Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Hey, everybody, we're back with a revived explanation, revived conversation <laughs> where Troy explains something to me, and this came from a uh, an account that sparked some thoughts that Troy wanted to explain to me. My understanding is you want to talk about a minister who was assigned to minister to uh, Nazi war criminals after the Holocaust. Is that correct? Yeah, let me walk you through this. So this story has been kind of rattling in the back of my head for over a year. Well, a long time. I read it a while ago and it, it's something about it just, it stuck with me, but it also just kind of, it just, it kind of is in your head and you're like, man, this is a really good question. Um, it actually reminds me, if you've listened to a recent episode of Martyrs and Missionaries, uh, there's this episode that Elise has on a guy named Mitsuho, let's see his name right, Mitsuho, Mitsuo Fuchida. And Mitsuo Fuchida, if you didn't listen to the episode yet, he is the captain of the group of people that flew over and bombed Pearl Harbor. <clears throat> Spoiler alert, because he's got Marge missionaries, he becomes a Christian, and he actually goes around America, basically, sharing the faith and telling other people about Jesus Christ. Now, the fact that a guy who bombed Pearl Harbor and was the leader of that attack could come to America and share his faith really tells you the forgiving nature of Christians. But you could sit there and go to yourself, okay, that's pretty incredible. But he, you know, it was war and he's a soldier and we can respect that you're fighting for your country. But there's another story, I think, that really challenges us and a little bit in our faith. And I think it's easy to listen to the story and go, okay, well, I would, you know, Jesus is for everybody. But put yourself in this guy's shoes and really ask yourself, could you do what I think that this gentleman did? Because I think it's really hard what he did. This man, his name is Gorecki. And I, and I do, you know, we've had a recent episode where we got a little bit in trouble for mispronouncing the name. I'm going to be honest with you. This is another one where I'm going to go, oops, I'm super sorry. I don't know if it's Gorecki is pronounced correctly. I didn't get the chance to speak with him as well as he has died quite a while back. But Gorecki is what we're going to at least call him, Gorecki or Gorek. Actually, I'm going to go with Gorek. It's Gorek, G-E-R-E-C-K-E. Uh, write in if you think I'm wrong. You probably do. All right, so Gorek here, though, he's going, hey, he is a chaplain in World War II. Now, he's originally, he's a Lutheran pastor. He kind of started his gig in the, in the 1920s. And he's been successful. He's been, he's been doing just fine. He's been known for being a guy who reaches out to the poor. He's been known for being a guy who reaches out to the sick. And he's been known for being a guy who actually visited prisons. He had a prison ministry. He's a Lutheran pastor. And he also speaks German. And when World War II erupts, his sons kind of go off to war and they're in there and they're doing their thing. And I believe they went off as spiritual chaplains as well. And he decides around 19, you know, late 1940s, I'm going to jump into, he goes over into World War II as a chaplain. And he's over there, he's helping out. And he gets assigned to go to one of the concentration camps with some of those platoons. He sees, you know, the horrors of World War II in Germany. He sees the terrible things that happened in the concentration camps. And he sees those really, really bad things. So it's not that this guy is ignorant. He knows what happened. And then as 1945 rolls around, as things are coming to an end, he survives the war. You know, Gorek is out of there. He's living. And he thinks that he's going home. But the upper brass kind of say, hey, we really would need you specifically to stay. And he's like, why? And they're like, here's the thing. 
uh, we're going to be doing these, you know, these Nuremberg trials where we're going to put these, you know, really terrible men, these Nazi leaders that we have um, in prison. And they were like, but one of the things we're trying to do is we're trying to, you know, be better than the very people that, you know, that these men were. And so we're going to uh, give them access to a chaplain. They've been asking for a chaplain. Uh, some of them are asking for a Catholic. We kind of got that settled. Uh, but others were asking for, you know, a, a Lutheran pastor. Germany was a Lutheran country. And you're kind of the only one we could possibly think of. You're you're Lutheran. You're a chaplain. You're an American. So, like, we're not, you know, we're not trusting you to be a Nazi sympathizer. Uh, you have prison ministry experience. And, again, you can speak the German. You can speak the language to them. You're really, and you've seen it. You know what these guys did. You you've done this thing. Can you go and be the chaplain to these really, really, really bad men for us? Is that something you think you could do? And that, to me, is not not a question. I think most of us are prepared to handle. Right? If two episodes, we kind of asked the question. You know, back in. A revived conversation recently, we said, hey, what if you're a spiritual advisor to Abraham Lincoln? Or what if you're a spiritual advisor to one of these great men? Well, flip the script. What if you're a minister to the worst people that have ever lived, right? What if you're the only hope of the gospel for men who did things that are so unspeakably evil, um, they're just considered the absolute worst people that have ever lived. And they, they pulled off some of the worst stuff. The people that he was a uh, minister to, um, one of them, I mean, several of them are famous as some of the worst architects of things good, uh, that ever happened. One of them will actually cause him a lot of controversy afterwards too. A gentleman that if you know anything about World War II, World War II and Holocaust history, you've heard of him. Hermann Goring was one of the people, leader of the Nazi party, one of the people that helped get Hitler elected in the first place, very powerful man, helped set up the concentration camps that began the whole process. And now you're going to be his chaplain. And now you're going to oversee his life and whether or not he gets spiritually fed uh, and gets the gospel in a sense, leading up to his death. And that's just one of those men. Hold so he's there. They're, they're executed, I'm assuming? Like, they're getting tried and... and so they're getting to... tried. Uh, some of them get executed. Actually, not all of them do. Some of them just kind of get pushed into jail um, for the rest of their days. But gotcha. we're talking we're talking the worst of the worst, like the, the literal leaders. This Herman guy them. is probably going to get executed, right? Yeah, he, he well, he gets sentenced to be executed, and then the night of his death, and we'll kind of get to that in a minute because it's actually something that happens the night of his death. That kind of causes a lot of drama... So some of these notorious people are men like Rudolf Hess, who was basically the fill-in uh, Adolf Hitler when Hitler was not there, the deputy Fuhrer. Another man was Albert Speer. This is a guy who literally uh, is called the architect and minister of armaments and war production. So without him, you wouldn't have been able to lead the armies for so long. He's that kind of an important person and obviously very involved in all the things that Germany did. Wilhelm Kietel, the general field marshal at the time. Joachim von Ribbentrop, the foreign minister, obviously not a good guy if you're the uh, foreign minister of that. Alfred Rosenberg, the minister of the occupied Eastern Territory. So he was an, and the primary author of many Nazi ideologies. So literally kind of a propagandist. I mean, these are pretty bad men. And I forgot to mention too, Goring is also the creator from earlier. The Goring we mentioned is also the creator of 
the Gestapo and the whole SS movement was his brainchild. And these are the kinds of people you're talking about. These are the worst of the worst, right? These are as literally a bad group of men as I think you can humanly get. Now imagine you think you're going home. You've seen the atrocities of this war for two years. And the U.S. government and these different international bodies say, hey, can you be the chaplain to these guys? What is that like when you show up for prison that first day and you're, you know, you're walking into the prison? What on earth is going through your mind as you go through that prison? You see these men. So at one point, some of the most powerful men in the world, at one point, one of the, some of the most dangerous men in the world, now they're prisoners and you're having to meet with them and talk with them and try to share the gospel. And what do you do? And how how do you steal yourself up uh, for for that job and getting yourself mentally prepared to go and see uh, just these really, really terrible human beings? Now, he describes, it was an interesting uh, thing about him, is that he says like some of these people were completely uninterested in God, but they were requesting a chaplain anyway. And so like the, one of the reasons they got a chaplain, they had a Lutheran chaplain is that the international board and everybody was like, you can have a chaplain. And they very specifically said, give us a Lutheran. And so they wanted him there. They were asking for him to be there. They said, bring us this guy. And they kind of liked him. Honestly, they, a lot of them were big fans of his, even the people who didn't end up being Christians were big fans of his, but he's giving services to them. And they're allowed to come. They don't have to come. And these the one side of it is, how do you minister to people who are some of the worst people on earth? The other side of it is, uh, what if they're not that interested in the gospel? And they're like, I'm okay with going you know, to hell and damnation. Do you leave them in that state? Or do you share the gospel with them any, anyway? Because the gospel is for everybody. And Greg, uh, he just goes for it. He meets with them one-on-one. He talks with them. He spends time with them. He's giving up another year of his life. He could go back home, be with his sons, be with his church, be with his family. He was on the World War II front lines for years. He saw all this terrible stuff. He probably wants to go home. And yet he's giving up a year of his life to meet with these terrible people and have long conversations with them. And imagine what that's like. I mean, yes, these were intelligent men. They weren't all the madmen scientists of maybe the concentration camps, but they were the guys who created those things. And what is that conversation like with him? Is it, is it, I mean, is that a conversation you would even want to have with somebody? And yet he's going one-on-one with each of these guys to say, where are you on faith? You know, what do you need? How can I pray for you? You know, the kind of stuff that a chaplain does. That's got to be a pretty intense job as you speak to people who, you know, a year ago thought they might win the war. A year ago, they thought that their plan to remake the human race would succeed and now you're sitting there by their bedside while they're waiting for their, you know, basically the trials to be over and for most of them to be pretty obviously ed- executed. He's in charge of directly about 11 to 15 of them. Um, and he's in charge of deciding whether or not some of them become Christian. And one of famously one of them, Goring, probably the most famous of all, did want this guy around. He liked having conversation with him. He enjoyed having him around and he enjoyed talking about God with him, but he did not want to become a Christian. Goring specifically stated uh, to him over and over again, like, you, you know, God's kind of cool. I don't mind the idea of maybe, I don't know, whatever. Like, I don't have a problem. I, but then he would kind of turn around and say, but I am a Christian. 
And Garrick would argue with him and be like, but do you believe in Jesus as the Messiah? And he's like, no, I don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And he would specifically say, Goring would say, not my words, Goring was saying, uh, Jesus is a Jew, so he can't be the Messiah because those are not good people. And that's not his actual words, but this is the sanitized version of what Goring said. And Garrick was very clear. And he was like, but then how can you be a Christian if you don't believe in Jesus? And he's like, but I get to believe, I believe in God. I was born a German. I'm a Christian. Goring would not accept the idea that he was not a Christian. And he was very upset about this idea that he had to believe in Jesus, the Jewish savior, to be a Christian. He was like, no, I just, I can't accept that. Finally, the time comes for Goring to be executed. And on that day, um, Garrick was accepting some of them to get a communion, which we'll talk about that in a minute too. But Goring is pushing really hard, saying, I should be allowed to take communion. I'm a Christian. And Garrick stands the line and says, do you accept Jesus? And the guy goes, I don't. And he goes, then you can't take communion as a Christian. You're not a Christian. And he goes, but I am. I'm a German. I'm born as one. And he finally, Garrick stands the line and says, you are not a Christian. You will not be taking communion. Goring is upset and he leaves. And then that night they find that Goring took a cyanide pill that he had stored away and kills himself before the execution. And so Goring dies. And the guy, Garrick, actually gets in a lot of trouble from the German Lutherans at the time who go, hey, anybody who wants to take communion can take communion if they say they're a Christian. And Garrick goes, look, he doesn't believe in Jesus. And they go, that's not the standard that we in the German Lutheran churches have. And Garrick goes, I'm an American, and this is the standard we hold, that you have to believe in Jesus to take communion as a Christian. And he got in a lot of trouble for not letting Goring take communion. And so imagine you're going through all of this. You're doing this thing you don't even want to do. You're talking to a man who clearly doesn't believe in Jesus Christ as God. You stand the line and say, you don't get to take communion because you're not a Christian. And then you get all this grief and flack for it. And this grief and flack follows him for the rest of his life. For the rest of his life, there are people in Germany and people criticizing him for not giving communion because they were like, you basically kept him from getting saved. And he goes, he wasn't saved in the first place. But then you have to ask the question, so wait, some of these men were taking communion, which means some of these men were basically, by Garrick's standard, Christians. And Garrick said, yes, there were at least four different people that he believed through that year, through counseling, through repentance, and through time in the Bible, who said they passed my standard of being a Christian. They accepted Jesus as their Lord. Their lives had genuinely changed and they had repented and they said everything that they're supposed to say. They lived everything they were supposed to live and they genuinely seemed to have a love of God in them. But that also kind of shakes you up, I think, a little bit as a person because it's so easy to go, yeah, I've met you know people who have been changed by Christ, but isn't it just kind of weird to think some of those people could be the Nazi leaders? I think a lot of us hear that and go, I don't know. I, I'm not supposed to feel like they can be saved, Right. But the gospel is for everybody. And if Paul the Apostle, who is a persecutor of Christians, can get saved, then, you know, shouldn't Nazi leaders also be able to reach a place where they can get saved, right? And he says, yeah, there were four of them. There were four of them that I was pretty convinced after working with them for a year. He's like, look, I've done prison ministry. I've done this for a long time. I know what the fake kind of looks like. And I know what the real deal in prison looks like. It's not easy. He says, but when you've done it for years and years, you get kind of good at identifying it. He said you, there were four know, of them. Do you know how many people he was ministering to? 
Like four out of how many-ish? He says four out of 11 that were sentenced to be executed. But I think he was actually over 15. And so I think four of them got sentenced to kind of like life in prison and fell out of his um, orbit. But four out of 11 of these are really bad guys. Right. Um, One of them. high success. That is pretty high success, and that's not bad. Uh, one of them, Ketel, the guy who was like that German general that we mentioned, um, Garrick went with him, and together the two of them, as he was going up the steps, because he still gets executed, right? And he, becoming a Christian didn't spare you from the Nuremberg execution. You still had to pay for the consequence. And as he's going up the steps to the gallows, the two of them and were praying a prayer. Both of them had been taught by their mothers. It was a special German prayer. Um, that they had as he was going up there. And he had given this gentleman specifically communion the night before and said, like, I'm pretty sure this one, as far as you can be sure of something like this, this one seems to be legitimate. And uh, Kedel had basically been like, pray for me. I know where I'm going. I'll see you again kind of a thing. And there was a couple of them that were in that boat. Now, this is obviously the Lutheran. There were 21 of them overall that had a chaplain. Um, Some of them just didn't want one, didn't care. And uh, several of them were Catholic. We don't really hear anything about the Catholic success rate. We don't know how they did. Um, Yeah, you could imagine how they maybe did. But, uh, yeah, no, there's this really big thing. And it just kind of blows your mind to think about. Like, you you, want to go, okay, yeah, that's really cool. Um, But, again, there's just that part of you, that kind of idea of you. But, like, wait a second, not them, right? Not the worst people that ever lived. Can they get saved? You know, or aren't they kind of beyond what God does? Don't they deserve it? And then uh, at one point, there was this rumor that went out in the prison. Uh, This is actually pretty close to their execution day. And this rumor went out that basically um, Garrick is done. He can't do it anymore. He's out. He doesn't. He's not going to stay to see them execute. He's going to leave a little early. He doesn't care anymore. He doesn't want to do it. And um, the the prisoners found out about this. These again, these really horrible people, and they wrote this letter and they wrote it to Garrick's wife back in America. And they basically wrote a plea and they said, hey, you know, we know we can't, we know we don't deserve this. We know that asking this of you is just a lot. But they were like, please don't let Garrick leave until we're done. Please don't let him go. And the specific line that they have in their letter is, our dear chaplain Garrick is necessary, not only for us as a minister, but as that he is thoroughly such a good man. Please don't let him, and then this is my, he please don't let him leave. And then it adds, we simply have come to love him. Don't let this guy, you know, go. Can you, I mean, imagine if you are Garrick's wife back in St. Louis and you get a letter from uh, Ketel, Goring, and Spear, right? Even Goring, the guy who ends up not getting the communion, they wrote this letter and put their signature on it, begging you, hey, um, don't let your husband leave us. We need him. Yeah, we can't do this without him, and he's so important to us. And there's that side of you that goes, uh, how many loved ones were you guys responsible for killing? How many of their letters did you, you know, let get out, right? How many people did you take care of, right? Six million people, at least, you were involved in the direct killing of. Kind of kind of uh, hypocritical for you to be asking for something that you didn't spare others, right? And yet here they are begging And notice that they're saying, not just that this guy's a minister, he's a good, godly man. We need him. We're not going to be able to do this without him. And, you know, she's like, look, the rumor's wrong. Garrett goes to them. He's like, hey, I don't 
don't really know why you write a letter to my wife. This, this rumor is incorrect. I'm going to stay until the end of your execution. I'm going to be here for you. And I'm going to give communion to those of you who, you know, we think are legitimate um, in it at the end. And so just this story, this idea to me of what would you do in that same situation? Now, this doesn't end up, by the way, it, it kind of hurts Garrick in the long run. After he does this, he does go back to St. Louis. He does kind of go back to doing the stuff that he normally did before. He kind of doesn't really talk about it a whole lot. I mean, would you? Uh, this is not like a part of his life. He goes around bragging about it, doesn't do a speaking tour. He doesn't write any, you know, big books or anything like that. In fact, it almost completely gets forgotten. But he does, but there is one group that remembers him, and that is people who thought that he was a Nazi sympathizer. Specifically, uh, some of the Israelites and stuff were, were, were very upset with him. How dare you give communion? You did this because you were a Nazi sympathizer. You did this because you secretly were on their side and you were telling them they were okay. You were, and he gets in a lot of like trouble with people like that, basically saying and accusing him of being a Nazi because he did what he was requested to do and actually preach the gospel to them. And so he doesn't get really remembered for it except for the hate mail that he got. And if I read the story correctly, remember, he literally received boxes of hate mail every year from people all over who's lost loved ones. And then they found out that even though they lost loved ones, these horrible monsters that did it got a chaplain at the end and they hated him for it. And so nobody else remembered what he did, but the people who hated him. And I was like, man, like I just, that's so hard to understand like what this guy went through and how that would be so horrible. And then on top of that, after you do this really rough year of giving up a year of your life to work and try to preach the gospel to these people, you see four of them maybe make it, right? And then you get home and you get to spend the rest of your life receiving literally boxes of hate mail for every day. And they said uh, when he died, they found all of the letters um, had been read and all of them were in his attic and he'd been keeping all of them. He read all of them. He saw all of them. He never mentioned it to anybody. Nobody even knew he had these letters, but they were all in his attic the whole time. So he knew about all of the hate people received and he was taking that in basically, but he wasn't sharing it. Um, what, an, like, what, what a thing to do. And this story was actually completely forgotten until a few years ago, somebody uh, was basically doing research. It was an archivist and was like, just really surprised to find out that Nuremberg trials had a chaplain. And they were like, why did they give them a chaplain? Like, what, what are you doing? These are horrible people. Like, this is, so, this is so strange. Why would you give them a chaplain? They couldn't understand. And they couldn't under, and this was not a Christian from what I can tell. And they didn't, they didn't understand why you would even want to be a chaplain to these people, at least not that early on. It took them some research. And I don't want to say this person wasn't a Christian. I didn't get the impression from the article, at least, that I kind of skimmed that they were. But they wrote this book basically about this guy and his story. And like, what on earth were you doing? Now, the son of Gorek by the way, just said that was just who he was. When he came back, he would spend a lot of time in the mental hospitals and he would spend a lot of time in prisons. And he even encouraged his own son to go into um, that kind of those prisons and those ministries. And his son was a head a chief of police at the time. And after visiting the mental asylum wards, he came back to his dad and he goes, oh my goodness, I see what you're saying now. Like this is really important for me as a police officer to see where these people kind of end up afterwards um, because it's not very good. And this son was like, that That really changed me. So this was just this kind of guy. This is kind of where he was in life. And these were just the kind of people he ministered to for the rest of his days. He didn't stop once he was done there. He didn't, you know, all right, I, I did what I could for the Nazis. I need to take a break and give it up. He just kind of kept going and going to the hard to reach people um, for the rest of his days, doing things that I think a lot of us would not have been able to do and would not have been um, feel confident to do. I mean, even just... 
even just being a minister to somebody who's going to be executed, that would be hard. But imagine if they're at this level, um, how incredibly hard that would be. All right. And so that is kind of the story of Gorek. And that was kind of the challenge slash thought that his story has been kind of roaming through my head of could, you know, and only through Christ, I think, could you do it. But could mm-hmm. you be a minister to people of that high a level of caliber of evil? You know, we don't have Nazi leaders like that today, uh, but there are definitely bad guys out there. There are definitely people out there who do really terrible things. You know, it's one thing to talk about, could you be a spiritual chaplain to the best of men, the leaders of the world? But then that reverse question of, do we, do you really believe the gospel is for everyone, that Jesus forgives everyone? It's easy to say it, but when you have to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who went and brought it to some people like Goring, and then you have to go, man, if I believe the gospel is for everyone, I believe it's even for people like that. And I would hope that they get saved, even if they're that bad. And it's easy to say it, but I, I just imagine trying to do it and how difficult that would have been. And then there's no thank you in this life for it. Instead, you're receiving boxes of hate for the rest of your life and how just incredibly tough that would have been. And that was the yeah. story that I kind of was in my mind for the past year. That's fascinating. Yeah. I The whole thing is kind of <clears throat> fascinating to me. I mean, and there is a level where it's like, wow, it's surprising that they let them have a chaplain in the first place. It's surprising that these guys wanted to hear it. And there were a couple of them just up like, no, nah, we, we don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to go to church. No, thanks. Um, but just what this guy had to go through to get to church, to get to them, to get to these people, to try to reach some of them for Christ, how serious he took it. He would visit their family members when he wasn't in the prison. He was going to their family members. Many of the family members were kind of affected by his ministry as well. I mean, he was quite literally, I mean, almost working just nonstop for these people. And again, just how hard that would have been. Because remember, he, it, the story began with him going to the concentration camps. He knew what they did. And he still went that uh, lovingly hard for them to see them come to Christ. I think that is, um, it, it shows the love of Christ and shows mm. how committed he was to believing that Jesus was truly for everyone. And I think in some ways that testifies to our faith in a completely different way, but in a completely real way that some test, you know, it's amazing when you hear the great ministry stories of people going to foreign lands, but some, but seeing that I go, wow, that guy really believed Jesus was truly for everyone. I hope I can have a faith just as strong. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, if you enjoyed this revived conversation, uh, share it with somebody. You send it to someone say, hey, listen to this kind of neat, encouraging story. Uh, thank you for listening to Revive Thoughts. Troy, do you have anything for our listeners? No, I just hope that you guys enjoy thinking about this episode. Hope you were able to think through some of your thoughts on this as well, and maybe it'll encourage you. And we always encourage you, please share this, uh, what we're doing here with other people say, hey, I heard this episode. What do you think about it? You may not agree with it. You may say, hey, I don't know what I think about this. Send us what your thoughts are. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear uh, the things that you would like to us discuss on when we do these revived conversations sometimes. If you have a topic or an idea that you think it's been about time that me and Joel tackle from a church history perspective, let us know what you would like that to be. And we'd be curious to hear from you on that as well. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. Hey.